Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Three games over the course of the last two days. The Golden State Warriors defeat the Los Angeles Lakers yesterday, 127 to 100. The Philadelphia 76ers drop a home game to the Boston Celtics, 114 to 102. And then the Denver Nuggets drop a game finally in this series to the Phoenix Suns, 121 to 114. Just unbelievable performance from Phoenix's two stars, Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. They combine for doing math in my head now. That's 86 points out of these 121 points for the Phoenix Suns. An unbelievable, incredible, uh, dominant performance from two players that needed to show up and absolutely did. We'll talk about one guy for Phoenix that did not show up in this game and eventually got benched, uh, and deservedly so in my opinion. But let's start with the good from the Phoenix Suns-Denver Nuggets game that just ended in a game that I thought was actually really fun and enjoyable to watch for a number of reasons. It was back and forth. There were a lot of adjustments going back and forth between the coaches. And then we obviously had this just unbelievable virtuosic performance from Devin Booker. We're going to dive into some tape here momentarily. We're going to talk a little bit about everything that we saw from Devin Booker in this game and some of the ways that I think Denver kind of let them get a little bit loose, in my opinion. I think that Denver's defensive game was not quite as on point as we'd seen in games one and two. And because of that, it felt like there was just a little bit more space and it felt like there was just a little bit more the Denver's on-ball defense was not quite as good. I think that they did not contain dribble penetration quite as well as what we have seen in games one and two. And that particularly led to Kevin Durant being able to get to the basket. But moreover, I think it led to Devin Booker and Kevin Durant getting into rhythm a little bit more in this game. But I think the biggest note to take away from this game is that without Chris Paul, the Phoenix Suns are going to run. It seems like they're going to try and get early offense, especially in the second half. It felt like once they realized Denver was collapsing and we'll kind of display that on tape in terms of what was happening in the second half defensively to try and shut down Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. It felt like once Denver started to collapse uh, defensively and try to sag off of everybody else other than Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, that it it became a real idea for Phoenix to try and get up and run. They obviously came out and tried to run early in the first half as well, but especially in the second half, it felt like there was just no other answer. They had to get up and go. Otherwise it was going to be harder for them 
to actually get easy shots. And I think that is a byproduct of Chris Paul not being in the mix for Phoenix tonight. Chris Paul, by and large, is a player that likes to play a slower tempo, not due to his age, due to his brain. He likes to really be able to uh, see across the defense and be able to kind of process everything that's happening on the court in a real way. And it does lead to his teams playing slower. This goes back uh, at times to New Orleans, but basically since uh, he got to Houston and particularly Phoenix, Oklahoma City that year, they played three guards. They'd get a little bit more up-tempo. But for the most part, this has been a slower Phoenix Suns team since Chris Paul and Kevin Durant have been there. And we saw that tonight. So I think it's worth diving into just how Devin Booker got loose tonight and how he was so incredible. And I think what you're going to see here is early on, there was a lot of transition and later on, there was a lot of early offense. Some of this was absolutely absurd shot making from Devin Booker, but the difference in this game, in my opinion, just straight up across the board, the number one factor in terms of why the Phoenix Suns won this game was that they pushed the pace. If you look at the fast break point differential, it was 23 for the Phoenix Suns versus 11 for the Denver Nuggets. That's an enormous differential. It's hard to make that up. And I think that what we're going to see here with Devin Booker is going to showcase why uh, why Denver's defense was not quite as on point, why Devin Booker is one of the uh, unbelievable best shot makers in all of the NBA, and uh, how Denver's transition defense, I think, was a little bit lacking tonight. So let's maybe start there. Let's go to the tape here. We're going to start at the 10.55 mark of the first quarter. And what you're going to see here is just that Nikola Jokic is going to try and pick up Devin Booker in the backcourt very briefly. And Devin Booker is obviously going to get by him. But because of that, as you can see, Denver has two guys trailing right now. This is essentially a five-on-three scenario for the Phoenix Suns. And that creates a very real advantageous situation where Devin Booker is going to be able to get into the paint unimpeded. And this is basically just a simple read. If the man that is guarding DeAndre Ayton, I believe that that is going to be Aaron Gordon. If he is going to come further to Devin Booker, that's a dump off pass to DeAndre Ayton. If he doesn't, it's just an easy floater. And you're going to see here, easy floater. Then at the 10.04 mark, this is where we just start getting into Devin Booker's bag and just how ridiculous he was. This is just a simple uh, right or left wing post up here. And Jamal Murray does fine here. There's nothing really that I think he did a good job of holding his ground, making it so that uh, Devin couldn't necessarily get deep into the paint. You'll see that I think actually on the next possession that we're going to showcase here, Contavious Caldwell Pope really gave ground to Devin Booker. And because of that, Devin got an easy layup, but here, I think Jamal does a pretty good job, but what you're going to see here also is that as Phoenix has emptied out this side for Devin Booker, nobody is coming to help. Like Aaron Gordon is there kind of in the gap a little bit, just kind of waiting to help down on that elbow if necessary. But he also is responsible for Kevin Durant. And I think that another thing we saw Phoenix do throughout the course of the second half particularly was involve Kevin Durant and Devin Booker in a lot of actions, right? They were trying to get those two involved because it became harder for 
guys like Aaron Gordon, guys like Jamal Murray, guys like KCP, Bruce Brown, to put two on the ball in that circumstance. Those guys end up getting left on an island a little bit uh, against a mid-range maestro like Devin Booker. And when Devin's feeling it like he is tonight, he goes 20 for 25. When he's on an island, it's going to be fine. What they really need to do is try and put two on the ball there. But Phoenix didn't really let them put two on the ball, which I think was an impressive adjustment for Monty Williams here. You're just going to see uh, Devin's going to just kind of shake him a little bit. He's going to face up after that mini post up, going to shake him. He's going to rise up. Jamal doesn't get an, doesn't get a hand up here, probably needs to get a hand up. But this is a shot that I think Denver is, in most circumstances, not uncomfortable with. But when it's before you know that Devin Booker is feeling it like he did tonight. And once you know that, you're going to start to see some adjustments here. Again, you're going to see – this is the uh, possession where Devin's going to post up Contavious Caldwell Pope. We're just going to watch this through again, uh, just like kind of a wave there from Aaron Gordon. He can't really do anything in help because if he really collapses down and tries to double, that's the same side kick out to Kevin Durant. That's a wide open three. Can't let that happen. This is just KCP not being strong enough to really deal with that on the block. Uh, Devin Booker muscles up a little bit there. And I think that throughout this game, just what you're going to see is that Devin Booker's mid-range game was more on point. But in general, leaving him isolated with one defender was not the answer tonight for the Denver Nuggets. Here you're going to see just a little dribble handoff action there from DeAndre Ayton to Kevin Durant. Durant, again, they're going to try and empty a side out of the court. Look at everybody. Over there on the right side of the court, Devin has all the space in the world to be able to operate. He's just going to rise up. He's going to knock this down after he separates a little bit from Contavious Caldwell Pope. Here we go again. This is in semi-transition. He's going to pull it out. He's going to get the ball screen here from DeAndre Ayton. And this is a drop coverage scenario. If you've watched this show and if you've watched the Denver Nuggets later in the season when they played a lot of drop coverage with Nikola Jokic, they did not really succeed in those circumstances. Jokic is much better being able to play flatter and at the level of the screen. If you're going to drop him, this is just going to be a little bit too easy for Devin to rise up and knock down this shot. Again, though, in the first quarter particularly, it felt like there was not a lot of I think the way to put it is there was not a lot of resistance provided by the Denver Nuggets. Uh, th- this is a patented letdown spot. You're on the road. You're up 2-0 in the series already, right? Phoenix has to come out with all sorts of desperation. Phoenix's stars certainly come out with all sorts of desperation. Kevin Durant and Devin Booker come out and really dominate this game to the tune of those 86 points that I mentioned earlier. Here, what you're going to see is that Devin is going to drive. He's going to back down Christian Brown, and this is just sick. Uh, Christian Brown plays good defense there. There's nothing you can do about that, but that is also why you can't let Devin Booker get the first 16 points and let him start to feel himself. That's when those shots start to fall for him, when he really starts to feel it. Here we go. We're in uh, the end stages of the first quarter now. That, I think, was at the two-minute mark of the first quarter. This one's at the one-minute mark of the first quarter. This is where we're going to see that the overall – ability to contain Phoenix's ball handlers uh, was just not quite good enough here. This is just an ole from Jamal Murray. Not good enough. No help at the basket really here. This is just not a great defensive possession from uh, the Denver Nuggets. And, and I will say this too. I think Jock Lawndale, this was the first of many 
very important plays from Jock Lawndale in this game. He gets just enough of a seal on Christian Brown as Nikola Jokic is trailing the play to where Brown can't get involved really as that potential rim protector. Jeff Green probably needs to be available here a little bit more than he is. But I think that this is a great, great little play uh, from the Phoenix Suns here as a team in general. But uh, now we're going to get into the second quarter. Six-minute mark about of the second quarter. Devin Booker's bringing the ball down the court. We're in transition again. Michael Porter Jr. does a great job here. He really, uh, I think, does as much as he can to kind of wall up with his chest. Devin's going to try and go through that chest because Michael's a little bit skinny. Michael uses his length to actually really contest and make that shot difficult. It's just an insane fall away from Devin Booker, right? Sometimes Devin Booker, if he gets ahead of steam like this, he's going to make these insane fallaways, and he made it, and that's all you can do. So now we're at the five-minute mark of the second quarter. What we're going to see here, Devin Booker going to catch the ball on the wing against Aaron Gordon, particularly. This is just a show and go. He's going to show it with the right. He's going to put it down with the left, and he's going to drive left. He's going to stop. He's going to pop at the elbow. He's going to knock it down. Again, you had to send two at Devin Booker at a certain point. Denver does that starting like pretty close to maybe not this possession. This is, again, just the next possession down the court. Again, you're going to see here Denver not picking up well enough in transition. Nobody really picks up uh, Devin Booker out on that wing. Michael Porter Jr. has his back turned. Aaron Gordon kind of recognizes it, but Aaron's trying to pay attention to where Kevin Durant is at all times because that's his assignment in this series. Aaron Gordon does, uh, you know, eventually I think – maybe make Michael Porter realize. I don't know if he said something there, but he Porter turns and tries to contest. But I mean, once you get Devin Booker's feet set, once you get him planted like that, it's going to be curtains. So that's a little bit too easy. None of this is all that complicated though, in terms of what you're seeing Phoenix's offense in the first half to get to these 67 points. It was not complicated. It was Kevin Durant driving, trying to finish Kevin Durant ISOs on Aaron Gordon, getting out in transition, running the court. None of this is like all that. There's not like a lot of X's and O's to break down here. This is kind of simple stuff where we're emptying out one side of the court and Denver's not really doing anything to adjust and stop that from happening. So Devin's just going to rock and we're going to let it go. So here, Devin Booker, again, this is just a drive. Nobody picks him up at the four-minute mark this time of the second quarter. Uh, this is just a really – yeah, I mean, this is, again, just a great example of Denver's contain on dribble penetration, not being good enough, right? Uh, you would like to see Aaron Gordon hopefully be able to wall up. But again, you know, when you're operating in these circumstances where this is basically a keeper on a dribble handoff, right? This is an option play, you know, think of an option play in football where the quarterback has the option to keep it or to pitch it. This is exactly what this is. This is an option play for Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. Devin Booker has the ball. He has the option to pitch it around the play to Kevin Durant. But instead, he recognizes that this is an empty side of the court and that he's probably going to be able to get that advantage on Aaron Gordon uh, because Aaron has to pay attention. He has to bring himself to the right because that's the direction his man is going. And it's a really smart design here because you have – DeAndre Ayton coming up to set the screen in the middle of the court and KCP essentially is going to treat this as if it's an ice situation. He's going to try and get his body in between the screener, 
which is Aiton, and his man, which is Devin Booker, and force Devin Booker to go baseline here. The problem is, again, that Aaron Gordon just doesn't do a good enough of dri- good enough job of dribble contain because of the design of sending his man, Kevin Durant, behind the play with the option play for the dribble handoff. This is a really smart design. This is probably the closest thing to X's and O's that I thought was very creative in the first half from Phoenix. Mostly it was just Devin Booker really getting loose and being able to take advantage of those isolation situations because Denver's dribble penetration was not good enough and because in general their decisions to not quite double, not quite bring enough help for uh, particularly Devin Booker in the first half was not good enough. Uh, He ends up at 27 in the first half here. uh, And it was just a phenomenal first half. Now we're into the second half. We're at the 730 mark of the third quarter. And Devin Booker has not made a field goal yet, if I remember correctly, in the third quarter. And it's in part because of the way that Denver tried to condense the court. And we're going to see this throughout this second half clips that we're going to watch. Denver did a really good job of sagging off of guys like campaign, like Landry Shamit here. Uh, Devin Booker again is on that empty side of the court here. Everybody is on the right side of the court. Devin Booker isolated on the left side of the court here. And this is a pitch back, but a, I don't love that DeAndre Ayton kind of rolls Nikola Jokic into a potential help situation there into the middle of the paint. And B, look at how far over now Michael Porter Jr. is helping. He is trying to really pay attention to Devin Booker and stop him from being isolated on that empty side of the court. He's trying to give Contavious Caldwell Pope help there. Look at how far away he is from Landry Shamit here. Uh, and how far he's going to have to recover to get back into help. This is just going to be a really solid, well-contested shot by Contavious Caldwell-Pope. This is what Denver wanted in this circumstance. Devin Booker is just a great basketball player, and he knocked it down. Denver made these adjustments. They did a really good job of making it harder for Kevin Durant and Devin Booker to be able to beat them in the second half. That's why they came back from down 15 points uh, at the, I believe two minute mark or so left in the, in the first half. Uh, they were down 67 to 52 in this game. And look at the score here at the point that we're watching at 73, 68 before Booker knocks down this shot. Eventually Denver takes the lead in the third quarter in part because of these defensive adjustments, making it much harder. Den- Phoenix's offense completely shut off until they started recognizing that they have to get out and run. They have to just take these early opportunities when they're given. If there's a good shot for one of Devin Booker or Kevin Durant, we got to take it and we got to go, right? So here we go again. Devin Booker bringing the ball up the quarter at about the seven-minute mark of the third quarter. He is going to get, I believe, here we go. This is Jamal Murray, Jamal Murray guarding him. Michael Porter kind of goes under like a potentially kind of slippy action there from campaign. And because of gets that, just that little bit of separation in space, Devin Booker uh, is going to rise up and just knock down this three pointer. But again, look at the amount of time on the shot clock. That's like, you know, by the time he lets that loose, that's seven seconds or less classic Phoenix suns under Mike D'Antoni offense, right? Here we go again, 21 seconds left on the shot clock. He's passing half court. This is a classic two for one scenario at 34 seconds left 
on the game clock. But again, seven seconds or less Suns offense. We're trying to get up. We're trying to run because Denver has taken the lead because their half court defense has gotten stingy and they've adjusted in terms of what we're trying to do on offense. Here we go again. Devin Booker just gets this early shot and knocks it down. This is just a pretty sick little set, a little slick Iverson cut uh, across the play here. Again, you're going to see, I believe that's Kevin Durant come from that strong side corner over to the weak side corner to empty out this side of the court for uh, Devin Booker here. And Devin Booker is going to get this drive and he's going to blow through. I believe that was Bruce Brown guarding him that time. Tough shot. Bruce Brown bodies up, makes it hard to go through his chest. But at the end of the day, that's just a really, really, uh, again, smart set that isolates Devin Booker on one side of the court. That was the goal for Phoenix tonight. We're trying to get Devin Booker isolated on an empty side of the court. Here we go. This is just a absolutely sick set of dribble moves. And he just, you know, gets loose from Jeff Green, but not even gets loose. I mean, it was just absurd that he was able to make that shot. Uh, the initial action here at the top to be able to do that is you're going to see kind of a stagger action uh, between Kevin Durant and Jock Lawndale setting the screen and Devin Booker coming through. Your goal here is to try and get that switch uh, from essentially Lawndale's guys, what you're hoping for. You're hoping it's not Aaron Gordon that's going to be able to come out. And indeed it is Lawndale's man who has to come out and defend. Uh, Jeff Green does a really good job here. He stays in front of his man. He slides with them. He contests. It's just a tough shot. That's the way it was going for Devin Booker tonight. Uh, And then finally here, another kind of handoff keeper play here. So Lawndale's going to set this screen coming across the play just to get Devin Booker a little bit loose. Option play where he can complete the dribble handoff here to Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant can come across the play into a ball screen for Jock Lawndale, and that probably ends up being a drop scenario from Nikola Jokic, just given where he is in the play at that point, if he does decide to execute the dribble handoff. But because he doesn't, Empty side of the court, he's essentially isolated on Nikola Jokic, and that's a shot that Jokic is just not going to be able to contest at all because Jokic's feet aren't quite quick enough and he's not light enough on them. This was just classic Devin Booker the entire game. Uh, Unbelievable, unbelievable work, I thought, from Phoenix to get him loose in the way that they wanted to get him loose by getting him isolated on one side of the court. I love the way that they utilized Kevin Durant and a lot of actions with him in order to – uh, force Denver's defense into difficult scenarios in terms of dribble penetration contained responsibilities. And uh, I just really loved the way that Denver responded in the second half, to be honest. I love the way they adjusted, forcing that help side over, making things more difficult. It's just sometimes Devin Booker is going to knock down shots, and that's all there is to it. Devin Booker, an incredible player. Uh, he's probably been the second best player in the playoffs so far behind uh Jimmy Butler uh unbelievable player uh so far in these playoffs he's really emerged into what people wanted him to be coming out of Kentucky and uh certainly after his run toward the finals in 2020 and then also uh throughout the last few years as he's emerged into an all-star this is not just your run of the mill all-star you know third team all NBA player in Devin Booker anymore this is a guy that at this point is one of the clear best players left in the playoffs. Uh, And I fully believe in him uh, to continue this run at this point. Now, 
We should talk about DeAndre Ayton very quickly. DeAndre Ayton was essentially a mess tonight, uh, especially on offense. He has four points. He's nine rebounds. Doesn't really crash the offensive glass all that hard. I thought he did an okay job stopping Nikola Jokic from scoring. Obviously, Nikola Jokic goes for 30, 17, and 17. I thought that a lot of those points came where Aiton was not necessarily guarding him. I thought that Aiton made his life harder in terms of the scoring output when he was defending Jokic. The problem is this is a game where the Suns desperately needed their third guy to come in and give them some offense, roll hard to the rim, be aggressive, be physical, be energetic. At around the three-minute mark of the second quarter, we saw like the play that is the epitome of DeAndre Ayton in these playoffs so far, unfortunately. He catches a pass on a roll. I want to say it was like a pocket pass from Devin Booker into an empty side of the court. His man is completely out of position. Nikola Jokic, I believe it was, uh, had kind of overcommitted to Booker. And all he has is Michael Porter Jr. rotating over from the weak side. DeAndre Ayton is seven foot tall, 250 pounds. When he wants to play with real force, he plays with real force. All he has to do is take two steps and just absolutely slam the hell out of this ball. He had that ability to do that. He needs to be aggressive. He needs to dunk it. He needs to play with force. Instead, He takes two steps and goes up for a layup. And Michael Porter swats the hell out of this layup. It goes the other way. I think Denver scores a bucket. There were a lot of other later second half moments on offense and on defense at that point as well, where DeAndre Ayton essentially became unplayable in this game. He got outplayed by Jock Londale in this game. We need to be realistic about that. We need to just say what it was. Jock Lawndale played better than DeAndre Ayton in this game and gave Phoenix a better chance to win. If that's going to continue to happen, Phoenix can't win this series, I don't think. I don't. And I don't know how much faith I would have in DeAndre Ayton like, coming back from this, frankly. He's had moments where he's come back from tough games before, But we're in a circumstance where Monty Williams just chose to close a game with Jock Lawndale. All due respect to Jock, he played great tonight. He was really energetic. He did all of the little things that Devin Booker needed just to get him a little bit of separation, be a high-level screener, actually be willing to score and try and like be aggressive with the ball when opportunities arose. He ended up with six points uh, and nine rebounds in 22 minutes of action. He went three of three from the field. Uh it just wasn't good enough tonight from DeAndre Ayton. And this is, you know, now the second or third time I feel like I've come on this show and talked about how it wasn't good enough from DeAndre Ayton. And we got to see it. At some point we've got to see DeAndre Ayton be that physical presence that he needs to be, needs to roll hard to the rim. I thought that the ability just of Jock Londale to roll hard to the rim and be like a presence on the offensive glass was a big part of why Phoenix tonight in the fourth quarter was able to kind of break the shackles 
for Devin Booker with all of that crazy help defense, just having to be aware of Jock Londale. It got to the point where Denver did not have to be aware of where DeAndre Ayton was. They didn't have to care if he was rolling to the rim or not because he was going to stop short into that short roll area. And that's an area of the court that they're comfortable with DeAndre Ayton being in. DeAndre's got to play better. I think that they need DeAndre defensively in this series against Jokic, and they need DeAndre at his best defensively. And they need him to be a real offensive threat just to relieve pressure at this point now on Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Wasn't good enough. We're at the point now where Miles in the YouTube comments is asking, has Jock Londale been the Suns' third best player in this series? Not a crazy take. <laughs> I mean, it, he, the way he played tonight, it was incredibly impactful and important. I mean, I think TJ Warren gave them some really good minutes. They finally played TJ Warren both first and second half minutes in this game. I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I think my answer is yes. I think Jock Lawndale probably has been, given the fact that this is the game that they won and they desperately needed it, and he was their third best player tonight. Yeah, probably. It, uh, <laughs> is there a third best player uh, for the Phoenix Suns? Honestly, there might not have been tonight. But that, that's where we're at in this series, unfortunately. And they need to do more. Uh, DeAndre Ayton needs to do more. Uh, it, it's just... Yeah, it's not quite not quite good enough. We'll take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. We're going to talk about the Celtics and the 76ers, a game that I really enjoyed watching uh, and a game that after we talked a lot about Joe Missoula's lack of adjustments uh, against James Harden in game one, I thought was very impressive from Joe Missoula uh, in terms of the way that he has uh, changed their style of play in order to account for guys uh, like – Joel Embiid, and James Harden. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. 
malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord, and it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. Let's start talking about the Celtics and the 76ers. Boston Celtics beat the 76ers 114 to 102. A really, really impressive game on a number of fronts from Boston because it felt like to me there were times in the fourth quarter given some of the late game offense issues that Boston has had over the course of this playoff run throughout the course of the season, it felt like this could have gotten away from Boston and they didn't let it happen. I love the fact that they did not let that happen. Uh, Jason Tatum goes for seven points in the last three minutes. I believe he outscored Philadelphia in that time. I believe they only had six points in the last three minutes. It was a really, really important kind of line in the sand, it felt like, for Boston, where Philadelphia is on their home court. They're really starting to aggressively come back in this game. It felt like it was kind of a 10-point cushion for a lot of the second half, and Philly finally makes their run. They get it down to 100-96, to and it's just like, oh, shit, here we go again. It could have been that for Boston. They've had these issues, certainly in recent times and throughout large swaths of the season. That didn't happen. And I think it's in part because of Jason Tatum. And I think it is in part because of some adjustments that Joe Missoula has made throughout the course of this series that I think deserve a lot of props. So in game one, James Harden really did a number on the Boston Celtics. Uh the way that he was able to find the advantageous matchups that he wanted in order to either get to the paint, touch the paint, be able to get to his step back, any sort of shot that James Harden wanted to get to, he was able to get there. At this point, Joe Missoula has gone away for the most part from playing what Boston prefers in terms of the too big structure and they've played smaller in games two and game three. They've played a lot more Grant Williams. I believe Grant Williams played something like 29 minutes in game two. And then in game three tonight, plays 23 minutes. And his minutes, I thought, were really, really important. The other guy that was incredibly important in this game was obviously Al Horford. Al Horford 
goes for 17 points on six shots, makes five threes, uh, seven rebounds, two assists. And it wasn't just the shot making. It was the way that Boston, particularly in the second half, I thought offensively, took Joel Embiid away from the rim and made life harder for him, especially with those smaller lineups where they can play five out and really force Joel into space. So let's just kind of dive into a few clips. I didn't grab a crazy amount of these ones because I thought that it it kind of spoke for itself in some moments. I felt that Boston being able to get Joel Embiid out into space in this game was kind of the most important thing that they were able to do successfully uh, in this game in the second half when they needed to. So here you're going to see Marcus Smart. He's going to come down the court. Uh, We're going to see Al Horford trailing into this play. Uh, He's going to set this screen here, and and it's just a really smart screen. He kind of continues to nudge James Harden away. He tries to isolate James Harden onto him so that Joel is forced to guard Marcus Smart in space here. And look, this is Joel being pretty okay uh, once Marcus kind of tries to back him down. But the key here is that Marcus recognizes that he's got Jason Tatum just for a dribble handoff where Jason's going to be able to get downhill against Joel. And Joel is going to have to play drop because Joel can only play drop. And it's just a great screen here on Tobias Harris from Marcus Smart. And at that point, you're forcing Joel Embiid into a one-on-one island situation against Jason Tatum. And that's going to be a very difficult spot in space for Joel Embiid. Jason Tatum drives to the rim this time. Good contest from Joel Embiid. I don't really have any qualms with how he played this. I think he played the possession well. It's just that Jason Tatum against Joel Embiid in space is a mismatch that favors Jason Tatum. So here we're going to see, I believe this is Jalen Brown who's going to catch this ball on the wing. And he recognizes immediately here as soon as he turns the corner that Joel is on him but that he's going to be able to string out Joel. I think he recognizes it right here. James Harden just kind of peels off and lets the switch happen, which is probably not quite good enough from James. But as soon as Jalen realizes that he's got Joel strung out onto him, he doesn't go up to the wing where P.J. Tucker can kind of get that switch back onto him. Uh, he He decides to go to the corner instead, which is big. And this is where, look, there's nobody in the paint right now. There's absolutely no bodies in the paint right now for the Philadelphia 76ers. This is beautiful, well-spaced, spread out, five-out offense for the Boston Celtics uh, where Al Horford is able to make shots because he goes five of seven from three tonight. And here, this is just Jalen Brown. He's going to shake him. He's going to blow by. He's going to just make that shot super easy. He gets the foul on Joel Embiid and goes to the line. He knocks down the end one. This is just simple stuff at the 10.30 mark of the third quarter. Here we go again, the nine-minute mark of the third quarter now. Uh, This is going to be Jason Tatum bringing the ball up the court. Good screen from Al Horford. And again, this is just a one-on-one situation with Joel Embiid on an island, having to deal with Jason Tatum and his shiftiness and his ability to stop-start with his handle. Here we go again. The shake, the little Euro step into the floater. I don't, again, think that's a bad rep in terms of a possession from Joel Embiid. I think he did everything he could to make life harder for Jason Tatum. 
Jason Tatum on Joel Embiid in those ball screen scenarios is a mismatch. So what we're going to see on this possession, I believe, is that Joel is going to come up and he's going to actually call out a pre-switch here. You can see him point to P.J. Tucker. He's trying to get P.J. to be the one to take the ball screen and he'll actually go and guard Jason or Jalen Brown this time. That way they can maybe avoid the mismatch of Joel in space if Jason Tatum uh, kind of does not handle the ball screen well. So look, P.J. Tucker flies out. Joel Embiid is responsible at this point for Jalen Brown. Jalen comes up, sets the little shimmy screen here, and he gets the ball at the top of the key. It's a beautiful little almost pick and pop. It's like a it's not quite a Spain action, but it has a similar uh, kind of texture to it in terms of the way it works out in practicality. Here, Jalen Brown, it's almost like a delayed Spain action where it's like they were like reading what was happening on the court as opposed to it being like a primary goal of the set here to get that like screen the screener action essentially. And it came because of the pre-switch that Joel called out. So because they pre-switched, Jason recognizes it. He just brings it back out to the key to Jalen. And again, this is Jalen Brown on an island against Joel Embiid. And his first step is too fast for Joel Embiid. That's the reality of the situation. That's all there is to it. He's going to be able to get by him every single time if he wants to. This one now, I believe this is the last one we've got. This is at the 320 mark of the third quarter. All of these, by the way, in the third quarter, as you can see, this one actually does involve Rob Williams. He comes up, he sets the screen, then flips it to a little step-up screen. And Joel is just way too deep in his drop here. Malcolm Brogdon can shoot. There's not really an excuse for him being that deep in the drop there. This is just a walk-in three for Malcolm Brogdon. I, one underrated thing about this series that I was texting about with a friend earlier tonight, uh, I think Tyrese Maxey has actually been like a really big part of why Philadelphia has been competitive in this series, not just on offense, but actually on defense as well. He's gotten a lot better defensively. He's not quite a sieve anymore. Uh, he, he is someone that fights and battles and scratches and claws. And he did really work hard here to get over the top of this step-up screen. So here he gets over the top of the initial screen and then comes the step-up and look at the recovery. Like he fights into it. He tries to get back into it. It's just a walk-in three for Malcolm Brogdon. That can't happen. Uh, that was a huge three. It gave Boston a seven-point lead. It got them back uh, into the you know three-possession advan- three advantage scenario. It, it was just really, really important, uh, I thought, that – uh, Joel Embiid was able to be taken advantage of in that way throughout the course of that third quarter uh, with Joe Missoula making those adjustments. The other big key of this series, for me at least, is kind of what I referenced earlier in regard to James Harden. I think the way that Boston has essentially shrunk down the court, has sagged off of Philadelphia shooters like P.J. Tucker and even at times – Tobias Harris and basically forced James Harden into being a purely perimeter player. James Harden can't really score right now unless he's getting to his step back, it feels like, or unless he's getting out on the break and getting all the way to the rim. He goes three for 14 tonight, two for seven from three, five turnovers, 
it felt like to me it was because Harden does not quite have that first step. If you guys remember, he had that Achilles injury in like late March. And it hasn't gone unnoticed to me that in game one of the Brooklyn series, James Harden played really well uh, and then was just okay in games two through four. Got the nine-day break. I think it was eight or nine days. And then in game one of this series, he wins the game for Philadelphia. He was the best player on the court in that game. Goes for like 45 points or whatever he did. And now in games two and three, with less rest, less time to recover, he has essentially not been able to replicate those performances. And yes, he had, I think, something like 16 points tonight. Yes, he had uh, something like, I think, 11 assists versus his five turnovers. James is still a valuable player, but James, that version of James Harden is not who Philadelphia hoped that they were acquiring. Uh, James Harden needs to get back to the level that he was, maybe not even in game one, but if he can be 80% of the guy that he was in game one, that's the guy that Philadelphia needs, I think, moving forward. That's really kind of all I've got on this series. I think Boston's defensive structure and the way that they've managed James Harden uh, has been quite impactful and effective in terms of just making him a perimeter player. Uh, the way that they've helped off of shooters has been really, really sharp uh, and really, really smart. And P.J. Tucker at times hurt them for it tonight. He goes three for four from three. But you know what? You're going to live with that, and you're going to force P.J. Tucker to beat you every single time. That's the reality of it. That's something that they didn't do in game one. But I think Joe Missoula deserves a lot of credit uh, in this game particularly and also in game two. Uh, by going smaller a lot of the time, uh, being able to switch those actions uh, at the top of the key uh, with James Harden. James Harden, again, can't really get that separation against those switches, it feels like, uh, in these games with a shorter runway. So that's important. I think Joe Mazzulla has done a great job. That decision to go smaller has really reaped, uh, reaped rewards for the Boston Celtics over the course of the last few games here. Uh Let's take one more quick commercial break, and then we're going to get into Warriors-Lakers. And if you guys want me to answer any questions after, I will do maybe a quick Q&A on anything that you guys want. So let's take one quick break, and we'll get into Warriors-Lakers. Let's jump in. Let's talk about Warriors-Lakers game two that happened last night. Really, really interesting game for a number of reasons. In large part, it has to do with the fact that the Warriors just completely blew the doors off of the Lakers in this game. And I think it happened in large part because of the adjustments that the Warriors made from game one to game two. The main one that was just immediate from the jump is obviously Jamichael Green enters the starting lineup. Uh, I believe that it's been reported maybe by Draymond Green on his podcast uh, itself that Kevon Looney came down with some sort of like illness 
uh, before the game and wasn't going to be able to play like a full minute load. And because of that, Jermichael Green ended up being the person to enter the starting lineup after some consultation between Steve Kerr, Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, etc. The team and uh, Steve Kerr kind of decided together, it felt like. And they wanted that size against Anthony Davis, as well as uh, wanting that shooting ability and ability to space the floor. So that adjustment works really well. Uh, it ends up spacing out and stretching out the court for the Lakers, for the Lakers defensively in ways that we'll talk about momentarily when we get to what I thought was the most impressive part of the game, which was uh, the Stephen Curry and Draymond Green pick and roll combination. But the other thing that they did was obviously run drastically more Draymond Green on uh, Anthony Davis than in game one. In game one, as we kind of talked about, there was a lot of a lot of experimentation, it felt like to me, where they weren't – they were trying to get a feel for how they wanted to play this Lakers team. There were possessions where they used Draymond Green on Jared Vanderbilt as a help defender. There were possessions where they used uh, Kevon Looney on, Draymond, or on Jared Vanderbilt and Draymond Green on Anthony Davis. There were possessions where they hid Stephen Curry – on Jared Vanderbilt in order to get Stephen Curry a blow because of the offensive load that he was carrying. There were a number of things that they did in order to kind of, you know, try and get a feel for the series. It felt like more than anything to me, they eventually get down by double figures. They make a comeback in the fourth quarter. Not quite enough. Lakers take game one. They get home court advantage at this point now. Fast forward to game two. You can see this in the numbers according to second spectrum. In game two, Draymond Green defends Anthony Davis on 39 possessions. Kevon Looney defends him on 15 possessions. Anyone else defends him on nine. Kevon Looney in game one defended him on 45 of the possessions. Draymond Green 27. All others eight. That comes from... uh, Kevin O'Connor, who got those numbers from Second Spectrum. Now, I think that that showcases, A, that Kevon Looney was probably not feeling well, and then, B, the big thing is that they made the adjustment to Draymond Green defensively, and I felt Draymond Green did a good job of shoving Anthony Davis out further away from the basket, essentially. He made Anthony Davis into more of a jump shooter than what he was in game one. And I think that that was a really, really important part of what the Lakers uh, success was in game one, all of the paint pressure that they got. And I thought that was a really important part of the Warriors defensive structure in game two, being able to get Anthony Davis shoved out a little bit further away from the basket and forcing him to become a little bit more of a jump shooter in this game. Having said that, the biggest adjustment was going like five out spread pick and roll for a big part of this game. They dropped 127 points in this game. A lot of the actions they ran for Clay Thompson were awesome. Uh, he knocked down a ton of shots off of screens, was super, super impactful. He ends up going eight for 11 from three. But to me, the best player on the court was one of Draymond Green or Stephen Curry, depending on how much you rate Draymond Green and the defensive job he did on Anthony Davis. 
having said that, Stephen Curry completely orchestrated this game like it was just his. Like he was the only one it felt like whose tempo who who was controlling the tempo of the game. And that's crazy if you think about the fact that he's playing a LeBron team. LeBron is the king of being able to orchestrate the tempo of a game, right? Last night it was Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry goes for 20 points, 12 assists, three turnovers, goes seven of 12 from the field. Not like a crazy Stephen Curry night if you just look at the numbers. But if you watch the tape, what you will see is that Stephen Curry and Draymond Green pick and roll game uh, that we've seen for so many years now that they have so much synergy in that they just know like the back of their hand at this point. That's what won this game, I felt like. So let's kind of dive into the tape here. Let's talk about the Stephen Curry and Draymond Green uh, pick and roll game that was so impactful. So here you're going to see Draymond Green come up, set a step-up screen. This is just at the 9.30 mark of the first quarter. So this is they're going to this early on in this game. They went to it way more late, but early on in this game, they were like, you know what? We think that with this five-out structure with Jermichael Green in for Kevon Looney, we can put Jermichael in a corner. We obviously have Clay. We obviously have Wiggins. They have to stay attached to all those guys as shooters. We're just going to go spread floor and we're going to go. So here, again, 930 mark of the first quarter. Draymond Green sets a step-up screen. We're going to see here. He's just going to roll into the middle of the court. And this is just classic Draymond Green. He's going to see before he even catches the ball, he knows where the help is coming from. He knows that I believe that is... D'Angelo Russell has come all the way inside the elbow and help. He knows that LeBron James uh, has come all the way inside the restricted area to help. So this is just him dribbling once and making a read, right? Nobody comes all the way toward him. That's kind of a stunt from D'Angelo Russell in the end of the day. LeBron James just not quite providing the impactful rim protection that he used to in these circumstances. This is one where, honestly, LeBron needs to do something, frankly. He needs to be the weak side rim protector. We need to be honest that sometimes LeBron's defense at this point is not quite as good as it can be. That needs to be a weak side rotation, and that needs to be LeBron contesting that layup in some regard to Draymond Green. Instead, Draymond Green gets an easy layup here. Uh, This one is actually going to be Kevon Looney. I believe this is the only Kevon Looney screen, maybe one more of the eight clips that we're going to watch here. Uh, But again, this is just a high ball screen here, and it's coming in a circumstance where Draymond Green is not on the court. As you can see, weak side, you have Andrew Wiggins and Clay Thompson. Strong side, you have Moses Moody on the court. This is just a beautiful – Anthony Davis is just like – split out here because of how high the ball screen is. He has his hand high. You have to when you're facing Stephen Curry because of the shooting ability. And he's just able to split this defense. This is a classic ball screen split scenario. He gets into the middle of the court and then he crosses back over, stops. And the whole time he's trying to draw both defenders toward him. Here we go. That's the whole goal here. He's trying to draw both defenders toward him. Eventually, they both commit. Anthony Davis leaves his feet. I believe that is Russell that is a little bit too tightly on him, and it just sets up a wide-open layup for Kevon Looney. This is just brilliance from Stephen Curry, 
in terms of knowing exactly how to draw both defenders toward him in order to open the lane and force a help from Anthony Davis here and then to create a wide open layup and a wide open lane for Kevon Looney. So here we go. Stephen Curry coming up again. Early ball screen from Draymond Green. He's going to slip into the empty area of the court. Uh, this is just a beautiful empty side ball screen at the 10:59 mark of the third quarter. So this is Draymond Green now. He's driving. That is a good help defensive possession from LeBron there. He forces the miss, but LeBron fouled him, unfortunately, on that play. LeBron not super pleased about that call. I don't know if I am either, to be honest. Here we go. Stephen Curry. This is a little bit more of a stagger opportunity here. This is going to be a really fun little wrinkle because what you create here is you create the potential for a slip action with Jamichael Green going behind the play. You still have Draymond Green as the short roller who can orchestrate and dictate everything. So here we go. Not even a slip action here from Jamichael at the 1030 mark of the third quarter. He actually makes contact there. And again, Stephen Curry beautifully drawing two defenders here. They decide to put two on the ball here. In this scenario, LeBron comes way up. Uh, that's Jared Vanderbilt trying to trap, essentially. And Steph just throws this beautiful overhand hook pass out right in the shooter's pocket to Jamichael Green. Jamichael Green misses the shot. But this is just beautiful offense, right? This is Steph just completely orchestrating everything. He is dictating the tempo. He's dictating the way defenders are playing him. He is forcing help. He is forcing uh, defenders into uncomfortable scenarios. He's creating easy offense for his teammates. All of these, by the way, is what you're going to note. They're going to be passes. They're going to be great ball movement scenarios. I didn't grab a single one of Stephen Curry making a shot here. This is all Steph dictating the game through his passing ability, not his scoring ability. On this one here, what you're going to see, this is just a screen here right at the top from Draymond Green, not even all that high up the court. This is just classic Stephen Curry and Draymond Green. Pocket pass after Anthony Davis comes out too high. Draymond Green is simply reading at that point that backside low man defender. It's LeBron James in this circumstance. He commits. He makes LeBron commit by jumping so that he can't actually get back out to close out on Andrew Wiggins. He hits the pass out to Wiggins. Wiggins knocks down the corner three. That gets them out 15 points ahead. This is now the 650 mark of the third quarter. This is a very high ball screen, which makes it very difficult for Anthony Davis and uh, that is Jared Vanderbilt to be able to kind of close those gaps. That's the advantage of the high ball screen in the Golden State Warriors offense. It's hard to close those gaps. So here, Draymond Green kind of gets his feet tied up with Jared Vanderbilt. Uh, Steph just kind of waits at this point for it to happen, recognizing that, again, Draymond Green going to have a four-on-three scenario. He's the fourth man. Clay is one. You know, Andrew Wiggins is two. And then who is that in the corner? I believe that is Jamichael Green in the corner again. So what we're looking at here is just a very simple read from Draymond Green. As soon as he recognizes that D'Angelo Russell has come up way too high uh, and that he is just way too high in this play as opposed to being low in the corner where Andrew Wiggins is, uh, this is just a simple 
live dribble whip pass. Wiggins has a wide open baseline because D'Angelo Russell is way too high in the play. And he goes up, draws the foul, gets two free throws, makes one of them. Next time down the court, the 620 mark of the third quarter. Here we go. And instead of actually taking this high ball screen, Steph is going to reject it. And it's just a little bit too easy. Probably walked there. But because he rejects it and because there's absolutely no contain here, because Jared Vanderbilt uh, treats this as an ice, it looks like, whereas Anthony Davis treats it as uh, more of a hedge. Uh, This is just a wide open lane for Stephen Curry to get into. And at that point, he's just waiting for LeBron to make a decision. LeBron makes the decision. He goes to help out onto Steph. Jamichael Green knocks down the three. Super simple, super easy. Here we go again. Draymond Green, just little, you know, you know, ask first screens. It leads into an actual ball screen there. And again, Steph hits the short roll for Draymond Green. D'Angelo Russell helps over. Anthony Davis helps over. And because, honestly, you could have hit either of those guys in the circumstance. That's the funniest thing about this play. Like, look at where Draymond Green is when he catches this. D'Angelo Russell has no idea where Andrew Wiggins is on this play. He has no idea that Andrew Wiggins is cutting baseline here. Uh, Anthony Davis is going to have to be the one that commits. Could have just dropped it off to Andrew Wiggins here. Instead, he gets the Jamichael Green baseline cut. Instead, that's an easy bucket. And then finally... Uh, here we go again. This is the last loony one. I'm sorry. Here we go. Steph takes the loony screen, takes that high dribble. It looked like almost purposely to me. He lost a little bit of control over it uh, in terms of like the functionality of the dribble, but it did seem like uh, he did actually try to do that in order to try and force his man toward him a little bit. Here we go. But instead of hitting the short roll this time, which they've done throughout the game, you're going to see he's going to go cross court after a little exchange uh, between Dante DiVincenzo. And I believe that also might be Wiggins there. Uh, there it is again. Rui almost thinks it's like an X out. It looks like he kind of goes up and like shoves. I believe that's Troy Brown up to defend Andrew Wiggins. And in that time, he just leaves Dante DiVincenzo wide open in the corner. It's just kind of simple stuff. Like this was a beautiful Stephen Curry game. He dictated the tempo. He dictated the pace. He dictated everything that the Warriors did out on the court against the Los Angeles Lakers last night. I thought it was one of uh, one of the more impressive games I've seen Stephen Curry play all playoffs. And he only had 20 points and 12 assists. It's not like a supernova game from him necessarily. Uh, he just completely dominated the game and he dominated it with Draymond Green All of those plays, except for two of them, involved Draymond Green as the short roller. Uh, As you notice, Stephen Curry did not get credit for an assist on, you know, probably, you know, a third of them. A lot of them were hockey assists, led to Draymond Green kickouts. Just really, really sharp offense, I thought, to spread it out, take advantage of the floor spacing that you have by having Jermichael Green in the offense and then going from there. Uh, A few different things here. Uh, in the comments that I'm seeing, I'm seeing some people ask about Mo Bamba as a potential option. Uh, I, I don't really see that as an ideal circumstance in this series because you can only play Mo Bamba in drop coverage. And 
if you play full drop with Mo Bamba against Stephen Curry, he is going to get absolutely obliterated. I think it would be a very bad idea to play Mo Bamba in the series against the Golden State Warriors. Uh, Mo is a guy that has talent. It's just this is not the series for him, in my opinion. Uh, if, if you play like that, the, the idea that this person is saying is like LeBron James, Austin Reeves, Jared Vanderbilt, AD, and Mo Bamba, and then you, what my guess is like you have Jared Vanderbilt, guard, uh, Steph, and then you have Braun be kind of like the weeks. But like, if you do that, you force LeBron into guarding probably Clay Tom. Well, you have Austin Reeves then guarding Clay, I guess. And that hasn't really gone well in this series. I think they need to find a different answer there, especially after last night. And then what you have LeBron probably guard Wiggins that could be okay and then you have essentially like Mo Bamba and Anthony Davis maybe you try and do some pre-switching action where Anthony Davis is going up and defending ball screens and you have Mo Bamba around the basket it's just really hard against the Warriors to pre-switch anything because of how intricate some of those sets are and then on top I just don't think it's a good idea I think that if you do that you're kind of setting up either to die by Stephen Curry you know, walk in, pull up threes. Or if you try and play at the level with Mo Bamba, his positioning is not quite good enough, especially in a new scheme in LA. It wasn't really good enough in Orlando, if we're being honest, um, to where he's going to be able to close that short roll area. And he's not quick enough really to even recover back into the play against Dre. I think that this is not the series for Mo Bamba. I think that, you know, maybe there will be next series if they play Denver, but this is not the one that can work in that respect. Uh, a couple of maybe like possible adjustments for the Lakers. You know, you could maybe run out Rui a little bit more to try and get the size out on the court. Uh, one adjustment that I'm a little bit surprised we haven't seen more of from the Lakers is actually them going smaller. Uh, you know, take Jared Vanderbilt off the court and force the Warriors to guard five guys as opposed to guarding four guys uh, because they just really don't care when Jared Vanderbilt has the ball in this series. Uh, I know that Jared Vanderbilt's like plus minus numbers are better than all of the other Lakers in this series, but I do wonder if there's a world where you could do something like Dennis Schroeder, Austin Reeves, D'Angelo Russell, uh, LeBron and AD, and then you have Dennis chase Steph off of all these actions. Dennis is actually pretty good at dealing with that. It's like the thing that he kind of can do defensively really well. Uh, you still don't really have the answer for Austin Reeves against Clay Thompson. You know, I, I just don't know if they have that answer from being completely real with it. Uh, I think that if you're going to play Austin Reeves, he probably has to guard Clay and you probably have to hope that Clay is going to miss shots. Um, but that basically what that does is playing smaller. It forces the Warriors to guard everybody on the court at once. And I can see that causing a few more stresses for their defense. It actually forces them to play a little bit smaller. You probably do then. Uh, you're probably not quite able then to play both Draymond Green and Kevon Looney regularly in that circumstance. And then on top of it, uh, that could lead to them going a little bit smaller, putting in Jordan Poole for Kevon Looney or Draymond Green at times. And if you do that, 
you then have the pool matchup, which is something you can take advantage of defensively, uh, as we've seen them try to do throughout the course of this series. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit interesting. I mean, I think it's tough. You know, Mal Dang asks, uh, why can't they just concede the Jamichael threes and have Jamichael's defender shadow Steph's screen setter and defend that pick and roll so AD can stay in the paint? A lot of the, like, you know, I think that the Warriors would then adjust. They'd probably set some more stagger screens and, like, double drags at the top. And it would be harder then to kind of do what you're asking for is essentially, like, to pre-switch that screen. Um, and then you'd be relying on Jamichael Green to miss shots. I'm comfortable with that idea. I don't think that's like a disaster plan to try and not defend Jamichael Green and leave AD in the paint, but you might get beat. You might get hit doing that. Jamichael can shoot, uh, especially if you leave him wide open. He made what, probably five threes last night. Does that sound right? Made three threes last night. I uh, had 15 points. So it's not, honestly, that's not a bad structure either. I think that's like not a, I think that's like more sensible than playing Mo Bamba. Uh, DC asks, how about Vando on Clay and Dennis on Steph? And I'd imagine then you're taking out Austin Reeves. Yeah, great. I think that's interesting. I will say I don't love Vando always on off-ball actions, especially for guys that are like technicians like Steph are, because a lot of what Jared Vanderbilt's greatness is defensively is like that over-aggression and like that length and that activity level and that uh, annoyance that he can cause for opposing teams uh, and opposing ball handlers uh, at the point of attack. I think that sometimes those guys that are great technicians like Steph, they can, or like Steph and Clay Thompson, frankly, they can get him going one way and then run like all sorts of misdirection actions off of it. And it becomes a little bit tougher, but I think that might be a better option. DC, I don't mind that trying to play Dennis on Steph and then Jared Vanderbilt on clay. I, I would maybe try that a little bit more. I think that's a pretty good plan. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, that, that's sharp. I think um, again, though, like to me, the goal is for them to manufacture offense as much as anything. Uh, and I think that having Jared Vanderbilt out there makes their offense a little bit tougher to manufacture. Uh, and it could lead to some rotational adjustments later where, the Warriors are forced to play guys like Jordan Poole. Maybe they're just very comfortable playing Moses Moody more. I mean, Moses Moody played 25 minutes in this game to Jordan Poole's 16. Uh, Dante DiVincenzo played 27 minutes to Jordan Poole's 16. Seems like they, you know, might have run out of, you know, leash for Jordan Poole. Uh, if that happens, that's a shame for the Lakers, given the way Jordan has played this series uh, and throughout the course of the playoffs, frankly. But yeah, I don't, I don't mind the idea of Dennis on Steph and then Vanderbilt on Clay, uh, and just try to force, for, for, just do it as a different look. Like you can do different things throughout the games. You know, Eric Weiss here over at Sports Aptitude, shout out to Eric, uh, brings up that Moses Moody's looked real solid. Agree. Moses Moody looks great in this series. He looks awesome. He looks like everything I thought he was when I ranked him seventh on my pre-draft board. Uh, I think he is going to be a really, really good player. I think he's going to be a very high-level starter uh, for the Golden State Warriors forever, basically. Uh, to me, he is a much more valuable archetype of player than what Jordan Poole is. Uh, you know, six foot six, six foot seven, Moses Moody, seven foot one wingspan, powerful, strong, physical, willing to defend, uh, and obviously can shoot. That's the biggest thing with uh, Moses Moody is that he can knock down shots. He's confident, like he's. 
he's he's a willing shot taker, and that's a really big piece, I think, a lot of the time. I, I just wish that Steve Kerr would have played him a little bit more throughout the regular season. Like they tried so many different things with Jonathan Kaminga and freaking Anthony lamb, right? Like I, I wish that we had seen more Moses Moody throughout the course of the regular season. And I feel like he'd be even more ready to play now if that was the case, but regardless, he's looked really good. And I think it's even more impressive for his, in his respect, that he's been able to come in and just immediately thrive in the way that he has as a like seventh man in a high leverage scenario. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think here. What, what else? I'm trying to think if we've got any other questions here, looking through the comments um, as a Boston fan, do we think the reason the Sixers got back into the game from Xavier Juarez uh, was after Rob will went out with the elbow injury um no is my kind of answer to that i think that they really succeeded a lot of the time uh playing that smaller lineup uh i think that they got back into the game in part just because they were always going to go on a run frankly um yeah i would say that it was more uh, just the rhythms of the game right like you're going to have bench units come in you're going to swip you're going to you know Momentum's going to shift and turn and everything. It's not like a scientific X's and O's reason for it, but I like Boston small in this series more than I like them uh, playing a little bit bigger with Rob Williams. And I really like them playing five out as we kind of explained uh, earlier. Let's see here. I think that's, I think that's all we got questions wise guys. Thank you all for coming in. Thank you all for listening. Please remember rate review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will not be back tomorrow. We will be back on Sunday. Uh, we will break down all of the action from the four games that occurred uh, over the previous two days. And we will dive deep into the playoffs. We'll dive deep into everything that we saw over the course of those two weekend days. And I'm super excited to do it. That'll probably be a spins podcast where we'll dive into tape. We'll talk a lot about some of the adjustments that we've seen over the course of a lot of these series. We'll get another Suns Nuggets game, another Sixers uh, Celtics game. And then tomorrow uh, are the two series that weren't uh, played today. So keep it locked here. Glad that you guys enjoy the tape. Glad that you guys enjoy diving into this stuff with me. Uh, please hit the subscribe on the YouTube channel. We're closing in on 5,000 subscribers, something like that. Um, you know, we're trying to really beef this thing up before the draft. And then you guys are going to get some awesome draft coverage stuff. I'm going to probably try and do some interviews with players on there. I'm probably going to try and do some, Oh, you know, we'll see. I'll probably do some tape breakdowns, you know, maybe a little bit here and there with spins, maybe like five or six plays where we'll get to talk about some of the things that they do well, some of the things they don't do well. Uh, very similar in terms of what structure to these, maybe not quite as long. We'll probably only go for like 15 minutes per prospect. We'll probably try and do something along those lines though. But this has all been fun. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.